24, I said 24 last week, didn't I? 24 this week too. 2415 Lifehouse Industrial Drive. That is the, the new, the address of the future home of Compass Bible Church Hill Country. Yeah, and you know what we're waiting on? We're waiting on it to get completed. We have construction going on now because it has got to be different than it was before. Uh, 2415 Lifehouse Industrial Drive was once a plating factory. It was once a birdseed distribution factory, distribution center. Uh, it was once a uh, government subcontractor facility. Uh, now it is going to be a gospel distribution center. <laughs> and with that, with a change in ownership, right, comes a change in function. Because this building is no longer what it was, it has to become now what it is going to be. And that's why we're sitting here in the Christian Youth Theater and not at 2415 Lifehouse Industrial Drive. You see, when we walked into this building uh, almost a year ago now, we walked into this building and we said, it looks kind of like a church, it could be a church, but there's no way this could be a church right now. Uh, as I walk in there today, I look around and say, wow, this looks a lot like a church building. I walk around and there was walls and, and, and doors uh, and rooms uh, that are no longer there. And I look in other places where there was never anything, and I look and there's something that resembles a building that we're going to meet in. Uh, well, I walked into a, a warehouse, this giant open room, and I said, this will never do. And now I'll walk in and say, this is going to be great. You see, that building is a work in progress. But that building isn't the only thing that's a work in progress. You and I and everyone who calls himself a Christian is a work in progress. Now, now don't get me wrong here. Okay, here's what I, I mean and here's what I don't mean. What I don't mean uh, is that your justification is a progressive justification. There's no such thing biblically that we could ever progress our lives into justification. Justification is a, an, at a one-time uh, point in our life where we turn from our sins and we trust in Christ. That would be what we call, a good friend told me earlier, a good foundation. That's a good foundation. And uh, although we are a work in progress and everything we build on that foundation is progressive, your justification is not progressive. However, everything after that is, and we actually call the term in theology progressive sanctification. And that is you being progressively taken from where you were, unuseful for the Lord, and then progresses you throughout your life to be most useful for the Lord. And you would know this to be true in your life as you've been growing in your faith. Uh, hopefully, probably five years ago, you were less uh, beneficial in the work of ministry than you are today. Right? Your life was probably a lot more sinful, hopefully, five, ten years ago than it is today. Would we agree with that? That's called progressive sanctification, and it's a biblical doctrine. Because what God calls us to do is be conformed into his image. Now, we are all his image, right? We were all born as an image of God, but we were broken. We were separated. Uh, we were not only just an imperfect image of God, we were an incapable image 
to do what God wanted us to do. We're like much like 2415 Lifehouse Industrial Drive. You look at it and you can see there's something in here that, that maybe someday could be something, but it could never be useful for that until God had come in, ripped out what was on the inside, and redid it. Now, on the inside, we're all, as Christians, if you've turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, on the inside, so to speak, we are saved. We are justified. But on the outside, there's a lot of things that we need to do in our Christian lives to be preparing not only for the gospel ministry that's here, but also for eternity. And that's really what we're looking at when Paul's talking in Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. Turn there now on your computer or in your Bible. I'll be reading out of the ESV. But what we need to understand is as Christians, we must diligently labor to demolish what is left of our sinful lives. And don't stop there, right? We're not just diligently laboring to demolish what is left of our sinful lives. We're also doing this. We are enthusiastically building up godly lives through the power of Christ. Did I say through your own power? No, through the power of Christ. And how are we going to do it? Are we going to drudgingly do it? Are we going to wake up in the morning and say, I guess I got to be holy today? No, we do it enthusiastically. Because not only do we know where we're going and we know that we are, are, are uh, now in relation to a perfect holy God, but we are being purposed. We are being set apart for holy use. That's really what it means to be a Christian, to be consecrated, to be set apart. Well, the problem arises in, in many of our lives when we neglect the work of dismantling personal sin in our life. You see, when we neglect to dismantle the personal sin in our life, we find ourselves repeatedly practicing the same things uh, that God condemns. The very things that God's wrath is going to come onto the earth for are often the very things that Christians find themselves dabbling back in after they've turned away from those things. And that's the problem, isn't it? When we want to live holy lives, when we're called to live holy lives, and the pastor gets up and says, you have to live holy lives, but then you look at your week last week and you said, I wasn't living a holy life, and so what do I do with this? See, the problem is not only are we repeatedly, as we live in sin as Christians, practicing the same sins that God condemns, we're entering our lives back in the same grief-filled position that we were before. And this is the problem that many people deal with, and that is, I, I, and there are very true Christians, people, not just people who believed all the facts and grew up in thinking they were Christians, but there are genuine believers who turned from their sins and trusted in Christ, uh, and they're still sinning. And the problem is, is they live and their lives feel just like they did before in many ways. Uh, and it's because well, we, don't, we don't read Scripture and we don't see that it says, hey, we got to turn from those things. And not only turn from those things, we got to take them off and we got to put on righteousness. And that's why it's important for Christians to do it uh, for lots of reasons. I don't want to get into all of them right now because we've got a whole sermon to preach. But one of the big problems is, is there's so many people, you're one of two people, right, when, you're, when you have sin in your life. You're either one person who isn't a Christian, right, uh, and, but you may have believed all the right things about God, but you have all this sin in your life that's never been justified. It's never been taken. It's never, Christ has never come and clothed you in righteousness and taken off your sin and nailed it to the cross. Okay? But you may think you're a Christian, but you have all this sin in your life. Now, here's the problem, because that is where most of the world is. right? They're living in sin. Christ has not uh, forgiven them for their sin. But now you have these Christians, okay? and, and maybe a small number of them, but there are these Christians who may have been saved, but they're still living in so much of the sin that they were saved from. 
And the problem is, is these Christians always regularly say, I don't know if I'm saved. Well, how do I know I'm saved? Or if somebody says, hey, are you saved? They get really defensive. What do you mean, am I saved? Well, does your life look like the gospel? I mean, were you saved from sin? Were you taken from darkness into light? And is your life bearing good fruit? Well, no. Well, why? That's what the Bible says. And then we, as we should, when we're living in that kind of lifestyle as Christians, we say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous. Maybe I'm not saved. You see, living a holy lifestyle doesn't just uh, line up with the Bible. It is for you a confirmation. It is for you a, I couldn't do this before under my own power, but since the Holy Spirit has come into my life and Christ has empowered me, I now have the power to live a holy life. You see what that does for you? It gives you peace of mind. It gives you an understanding that now you're not just trying to live every day uh, regretting all the sin in your life. Instead, you get to live every day and wake up in the morning to live a holy life and to build God's church. You see, one of the biggest problems in our church today is we have so many people living in sin that no one is actually doing the work of ministry because they're too busy trying to continue like, uh, what do I do with all this sin? We got to get rid of the sin because we got to start building God's church. We got to start doing ministry. And so that's why Paul says this in Colossians 3, verse 5. Look at verse 5. This is the first thing he says, and this needs to be the way that we wake up every morning. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. We got to demolish something. We got to get rid of something. And it's those things which are earthly in us. We got to kill those things. That's pretty aggressive, isn't it? It's an aggressive phrase for Paul to enter into verse 5 and say, put to death. The truth is, in our lives, that we have to kill sin. And that's the focus of this section here that Paul is writing about. We have got to put to death some things that are in our lives. And Paul gives specific examples, and he lists out five of them. First, he talks about sexual immorality. He says, specifically, church in Colossae, something that you guys have got to kill in your life is sexual immorality. Now, he uses a word that I think is important when he says sexual immorality, and it's the word pornea. Okay? You might get that in the English because it's what we call pornography, pornea. Right? Uh, it's this idea, uh, and you need to know this because sexual immorality isn't just adultery. Right? There's a Greek word for adultery in Scripture, and it's mochivo. Right, that's the actual act of adultery. Uh, sexual immorality is any sexual act outside of marriage. Okay, and it's not just the action that is an outward act; it's the inward act. Right? Even Jesus says, right, anyone who looks on a woman lustfully commits adultery in his heart. And so, what you need to understand here is when Paul is talking about uh, pornea, he's like, you've got to get rid of all of it, all of it. All the things internal, external, things in your mind, things in your heart, practices that are going on in your life, all those things that are sexually immoral need to be taken away, need to be ripped out. You need to kill them. Okay, you have a, how should I say this? You got a lion in your house, a lion, big lion, massive lion. Uh, And you got three kids upstairs, uh, lion, biggest lion you've ever seen, walks right in the front door. And it tells you, I'm here to kill everyone in your house. Uh, you go and you get your gun and you shoot it in the foot. And you say, that'll do. All right. Do you do that? And then you shoot it in the foot and you walk into your bedroom and close the door and say, yeah, we're good. No, no. You go grab the biggest gun you have and you point it right between the eyes and you shoot it. You kill it, don't you? So many times, even our best decisions that we try to make concerning, especially sexual immorality. I'm talking to men here. I'm talking to women here. I'm talking to everybody in here. We shoot it in the foot and we say, I did what I could. When we, we didn't do what we could, did we? 
We did something. We gave it the good virtue signal of, I get that it's wrong, Lord, let me, let me do something. No, no, no. We don't need to do just something. We need to kill it. It needs to be destroyed. It needs to be dismantled and taken out and put in the garbage. And if we're not willing to do that, uh, sexual immorality, every time Paul talks about it, uh, when he's writing to the churches, which Paul talks about, he's got a great sexual ethic, Paul does, and he writes about it all the time because he sees how big of a problem it is in the church. And it's a problem in our church. It's a problem in the American church. But Paul always talks about it, and it's always the first or second example he uses in every sin list. You go to, go to the Bible, go to the Pauline epistles, and look, every time he talks about a list of sins, sexual sins is always one or two. And I want you to think in your life, and I want you to think of your history, and when you can think, here's all the worst sins in my life, is sexual sins not one or two? Okay? What I'm saying is this. We need to kill those things. We need to kill what's left of those things. It's beautiful that God has given us marriage to protect us from those things. It's beautiful that God has given us a church family to protect us from these things. And it's beautiful that he's given us his Holy Spirit that can guide us away from those things. But we need to use them. And there are, we're not allowed to sit in those things uh, because we're saved, which so many people would like to, like to condone. Well, you've been saved from those things. There's grace for those things. Well, Paul says, right, should we keep sinning so grace may abound? He says, by no means. It, it's senseless as a Christian who's been saved for a holy purpose to still sit in the sin that God's wrath is coming for. Have I, have I stomped on that one enough? All right. Impurity. Impurity in a context here uh, is those things which follow sexual sins, right? You think of your sexual sins, you think of uh, the sexual uh, revolution going on in America right now, you think of this impurity in general. Uh, when we look at the sexual acts outside of marriage, it's often left with baggage and emotions and clutter in our life that ought not to be, isn't it? It's left with a stigma, it's left, it's left with the ideas in my mind, this impurity within me because of the actions I've made, right? We all agree with those things. That's the impurity that we've got to kill. And we get, in order to kill the impurity, we've got to kill the sexual immorality. And there's people in here, there's people listening online, there's people streaming this, you've got to kill it. We've got we to understand that you're at a place that you need to kill sexual immorality and you don't need to shoot it in the foot, you need to get rid of it. Next, passion for evil desires this is the next thing that Paul talks about. You have a passion for evil desires. You may see it as, uh, in, in your list as passion and evil desire. Well, they're meant to go hand in hand. Because what is a passion for evil desires? Well, simply put, it's a desire that's gone sinful. Right? Having a desire is not necessarily a bad thing. However, a desire misplaced is just called sin. A desire uh, in your life that isn't something that God wants in your life is sin. And when you have a desire and God doesn't want you to have it and you still want it, it's now then an evil desire, which leads to the next one, and it's covetousness. You see, your desire for something that you can't have, you need to read the letter of James. It talks about this real good, okay? Real good. All right. When you want and you have a desire for something you can't have, you then covet it. You covet it. You try to get it however you can. You try to, try to sneak it. I remember growing up in my, uh, I stayed tonight at my mama and papa's house all the time. Uh, and when my mama would go run errands, I would sneak and get ice cream out of the freezer. And I would probably do it two or three times a day. And I snuck and did it because I know that if I asked them for it two, th two or three times a day, they would say, you're not getting it. But I coveted it. The minute that she ran out and got in her van and drove off, I looked through the window, made sure she wasn't there, and I ran to get a bowl. 
to put ice cream in it. I coveted that ice cream because it was a desire of something that was not mine, and I did what I could to get it. And you realize this all connects to sexual immorality. Why do, we, why do you watch things that you shouldn't watch? Because you covet something you do not have. You covet something that God says you shall not partake in. And I love it because he, he ends with the real problem here. Okay, the real problem is the word idolatry. Can you, can you underline that word, idolatry? Because all of this list is talking about idolatry. And you might ask, what is an idol? Because I think this may be a misconception that we have in our culture about what is an idol, what isn't an idol. Uh, I mean, we, we watch the American idol, right? We even celebrate idol, idolatry, right? Uh, it isn't necessarily the golden calf uh, that Moses got mad at and God got angry at as he comes down uh, from, from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. We're not just talking about these, these images. An idol is this, and if you don't have this in your mind concretely, you need to write this out. An idol is anything that you love more than God. An idol is anything that you love more than God. Now, here's where I want to convict all of us, including myself. It's not just something you love permanently more than God. Of course, it is that. Right? If there is something in your life that you permanently love more than God, every time God is brought up in this other thing, your attention goes to this other thing. That is idolatry. Okay. But idolatry is also anything that you love more than God momentarily. That means that on Monday, I chose God. On Tuesday, I chose God. On Wednesday, I chose God. But on Thursday, I chose this other things. That is still idolatry. Idolatry is anything, anything that you love more than God, even if it's in the moment. Even if it's in the moment. Do you get where I'm going here? Okay. You may be somebody uh, who, I don't, I don't like uh, you know, sexual immorality. I, I choose God over it. But you didn't on Friday. It's an idol. Because even in a moment, you chose it over God. You see, often what sin is, actually always what sin is, is a case of idolatry. Because anything that you say yes to that God calls sin is called idolatry because you picked it over what God said was good and right and perfect. And so at the end of this, we're not just talking about this list of, of five sins and then idolatry. We're just talking about idolatry here. We're just talking about us choosing something over God. And friends, that can't be. We can't say that we're Christians and yet choose something over God. Could never do it. And that's why we're, we're preaching about this. That's why the Bible talks about this, because we can't be those people. Why can't we be those people? Look at verse 6. On account of these things, on account of idolatry, the wrath of God is coming. So why can I not be an idolater? Why can I not live and love something today more than God, even in a moment? Because it's those very things, it's the idolatry of the world that the wrath of God is coming for, and is the wrath in which you were saved from. So the fact that God is coming with his wrath, and he said, hey, the wrath of me is going to be poured out, I poured it out on Christ on the cross, is exactly why we needed saving. Because in our lives, we had the impurity of idolatry on our lives, in our lives, in our hearts, and they came out in the way that we live. And we knew that we needed Christ to solve the problem of idolatry. And so why would we, as people who have confessed to the sin of idolatry that has separated us from God, turned from those things, and gone after Christ, still live in them. We see the problem? 
we understand that because of idolatry, the wrath of God is coming. Now, verse 7, which I think is a really good uh, in place that we all need to understand because we all need uh, to have a, a real sure grasp of where we came from and where many people are today. And the reason we need to focus on the gospel is in these two, verse 7, you once walked when you were living in them. Do you hear this? Everyone once walked in these things. Everyone once walked in idolatry. And we understand now, right? I think we, a good biblical theology says, states, that's why the wrath of God is coming on the world. Is God an angry God who hates everything? No. Every single human being on planet Earth walks in enmity with God because they love things more than God. And God is just and right to hate those things and to exact justice upon those things. And so for you and I, it's the grace of Christ literally that saves us from the wrath that is coming on the world because of idolatry, because of the world loves everything more than they love God. And this was your former life. This was who you were. Now, the past tense here, this is who you were, means it is no longer who you are. And so because it's not who you are, we've got to kill it. We've got to get rid of it. It'd be like walking into 2415 Lifehouse, and we, we go into the nursery, and you want to check your babes in at the nursery, and yet we sell this giant saw in there uh, that used to help make, um, make the, the things that the last facilities had. With a giant saw in there, still plugged in, and you drop your kid off in there with a big saw, and there's the nursery attendants. They're there. They take them in there and say, we'll see you later, and you say... There's a saw in there. It's okay, all right? I know it, this used to be that kind of place, but it's no longer that kind of place. Well, then why is there a saw in there? We just haven't got everything out yet, okay? It's okay. Go to church. We'll see you later. I'm not dropping my kids off in a room with a massive saw, right? Why? Because that's not what this room is for anymore, right? This isn't what your life is for anymore. And there is no excuse to say there's a room with sin in it that belongs there because it doesn't belong there. And it's a good thing, right? Because you used to be trapped in that place and you're no longer trapped in that place. You used to be a slave to sin and now you're a slave to Christ. If anyone sits in here and says, oh, this is so bad, you don't understand the gospel. It's a glorious thing that we're not enslaved to sin anymore. So therefore we don't walk in it anymore. Isn't that good? Isn't that a great thing? And so since we understand these things to be true, we need to write this point down on the first point. You need to aggressively tear down idols, aggressively tear down idols. It needs to be something that you're working towards. It's not a passive endeavor. It's an active endeavor, and it's a little bit of an aggressive endeavor. That's why I use that word. Aggressively tear down idols, things that you love more than God. If there is something in your mind that pops up as you should be doing something for the Lord, and you want to go do that thing, it's good to tear that thing down. Okay? Maybe you like eating more than you love spending time with the Lord. Now, here's the problem you're going to run into. You love eating, but you love the Lord. Well, you got to eat or you're going to die. You're going to tear that idol down, and you're putting it at its proper place, which is below God. And that's what so many of us need to be doing in our lives today, is putting things back where they belong. If it's sexual sin, it doesn't belong anywhere. Get rid of it. Okay? But if it's things like eating, which are things you know you got to do, they need to get to their proper place, and that's in subjection to God. I want you to write down a, a verse, 2 Chronicles 34. You don't have to flip there. The Second Chronicles 34, uh, King Josiah comes on scene. He's one of the good kings of the southern kingdom, right? Once the, the kingdom was split into two, it became the divided kingdoms after King Solomon. Uh, we have the southern kingdom, which was often the good kingdom until it got taken over by the Babylonians because they were in sin. But they were what we would call the kingdom that tried to follow God the, the longest in, in this time. And there was a good king, King Josiah. 
Uh, and here's what happened. When King Josiah was eight years old, he began to reign. Okay, you're right. You think I'm too young? All right. You think you're too young? All right. He was eight. All right. Eight years old, and he was king of a nation. All right. No more excuses. All right. Eight years old, he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. That's a long time, even, even for all the kings that reigned. 31 years was one of the longest reigns of any of the kings of Israel. And he did, listen to this, what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You got to know that first, because everything I'm about to tell you is right in the eyes of the Lord. It was just and perfect in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. You see that? Eyes laser focused on eternity, wasn't turning to the left, wasn't turning to the right. His eyes were on things above. We talked about that last week, didn't we? All right. For in the eighth year of his reign, this means he was 16 years old, all right, uh, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. That's good, right? He's learning about the Lord. Now, here's what happens next. In the 12th year, so now he's 20 years old. He's a young lad, 20 years old. Here's what he started doing. He began to purge Judah in Jerusalem of idols. He began to purge the high places, the Asherim, which is a Canaanite fertility goddess, right? And the carved and metal images. At 20 years old, he understood that, the, that Israel loved those things more than they loved God. And he went at 20 years old and started tearing them down. He said, this is not going to happen, not on my watch, not in my country, not in my home. Verse 4, and they chopped down idols, the altars of Baal, in his presence. So he's like, uh-uh, do it right now. We'll do it later. We got to go to lunch. No, you're going to do it right now. I'm standing here. Tear it down right now. How serious are you about tearing down idols? How serious are you about tearing down sin? Are you going to do it right now? Is it right now we're going to do it? I'm not leaving until this is out. How serious are we about killing sin? He cut down the incense altars that stood above them. He broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and metal images. Listen to this. He cut them down, right? Those are, how, how, how mad are you? How angry are you that you have sin in your life and how much do you want to get rid of them? Yeah, I'll cut them down. I'll, you know, I'll throw it in the trash. Well, let's see how, how bad King Josiah hated these things. Here's what he did. He made dust of them. He did not just cut them into pieces. He turned them into dust. He said, there will be no semblance of these, not on my watch, not in my home, not in my country. He's like, I'm going to make this powder so fine that no one can put together what this ever was. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And here's what he did. He scattered it over the graves of those who sacrificed to them. Righteous indignation much? Yep. Okay. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah in Jerusalem. He said, people won't even know the names of the people who, who offered sacrifices to these false gods. You see that? He's given no room for idolatry in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, in the ruins all around. He broke down idols and altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all of the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Do you see that? He took care of all the idols, he took care of all the sin, and then he went back home. And I'm saying, are we serious enough in our own lives to aggressively tear down idols and we're not going to finish until we're done? That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to wage war against sin. That's what Christ literally did. That's why when he was resurrected, it was triumphant. It was victorious because he overtook the very things that is going to take every one of us, sin and death. And we have got to not close the door at night, not go home, not turn the lights off until we're killing sin. 
until it's gone, until it's completely out. Really, what we need to do is we don't need to settle for a partially renovated life. We don't need to settle for a partially renovated sin life. I get it, okay? Like I said before, sanctification is progressive, right? That means once you are a Christian, you're not going to be perfect, right? You're not going to be perfect this side of glory. We all are on the same page there. I cannot be perfect this side of eternity. And I get that it's progressive. That means today I should be, I should be better than yesterday, and next week I should be better today when it comes to my holy living, okay? And I get that in 10 years I should be a lot different. And I get that it's going to be a little bit of a jagged line, but it is progressive, you realize. Right? It's progressive because it's continually trending upward, okay? which means this, that it cannot be regressive and it cannot be stagnant. Okay? That means I can't be sitting today and, and looking at my life and say, I was a much better Christian 10 years ago. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. It's called progressive sanctification, not regressive sanctification. Right? You don't become worse as you age as a Christian. You get better because it's the Spirit sanctifying you. You say, well, I am getting worse. Well, let's go back to the gospel and make sure we got that right first. Because maybe we thought we knew the gospel. Maybe we thought we knew all the facts of the gospel. Uh, and we did, but we never turned from our sins and trusted in Christ. We never responded rightly to the gospel that was offered. Because as a Christian, uh, it's not always a straight line, but it is a progressive line. It is a trending progressively upward line. Now, we're going to tear down idols. We should. But there's some other demo that needs to be done in our lives as we get ready to build up godly lives. I want you to look at verse 8. Okay, we got, we're getting rid of those things. We're aggressively tearing down those idols. But here's something else we need to be doing. Verse 8. But now you must... Put them all away. Here we, you're going to get into this motif here in the next verses, 8 through 11, of taking off clothes and putting on clothes. Okay, so I want you to use that imagery in your mind because that's what Paul is doing. There's some things we need to take off. They smell bad. They're outer. It's outerwear. There's some things that you're doing in your life that are outward that people can see and smell. Okay, And we need to now get rid of those things. And Paul is going to then list them and talk about what we need to be doing with them. But we need to understand there's some things we need to take off of our lives. Okay, You as a Christian, me as a Christian, we've got to take these things off of our life. Here it is. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. We have six things that we need to be taking off. One is anger. And, and let's, let, me, let me go back a little bit. These are relational sins, you realize. Who are you angry at? Who do you slander against? When you say mean, filthy, nasty things, who are you saying it to? People, interpersonal relationships. Uh, and Paul is a Jewish man, wasn't he? Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Uh, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. So he knew the law, really. We, if you can look real into here, here's what he's doing. He's giving these two lists of sins, and he's taking them back to the Ten Commandments. He's saying, idolatry, the first five commandments, you should love the Lord your God. You should have no other idols, right? These things, you ought to be doing these things. You'd be loving God. And then the second list, the second five commandments, talk about how we relate to other people. The first five commandments is how we relate to God. The second five commandments is how we relate to people. And then he talks here, here's how you need to understand idolatry doesn't happen with Christians. Now, he's going to go now to the second set and says, here's how you deal with people. Here's how you live rightly in relation to other people. This is what he says, anger. Put it away. Take it off. You're wearing it? Take it off. Take it off right now. What is anger? A continual state of hate, of, of loathing of another person, something that you can't stop, 
and insatiative desire to, to hate, to dislike someone else, you can't wear that as a Christian. You've got to take that off. We don't wear those things. Wrath, a rage, a desire to exact punishment or pain unjustly. How many of us want to do that? That's our culture, is it not? We want, we want to exact our wrath upon people who do not agree with us. It's not our place. God's going to exact justice in His timing. And as Christians, and here's what you need to see, this is obviously talking about a Christian context, so we're not just talking about society here and culture, we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is where we're going to put a strong foot down. There will not be any anger or wrath or malice or slander of scene talk or lying going on at Compass Bible Church. We're going to call it out, we're going to weed it out, we're going to kill it. Malice, a desire to exact punishment and pain unjustly. Slander. Malice played out. That's what slander is, right? You have this, you want to just get somebody back, and it always starts with slander. Because you're, 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 not, you're not that bold enough to go out and just do the physical acts of, of malice, right? You're going to beat someone up or kill somebody, right? But what you are going to do is you're going to go out and you're going to gossip, right? You're going to go out and you're going to say things that are embellishing, untrue, unfaithful to God and His church, and you're going to go and you're going to slander people. We're going to do that. We won't do that. We have church discipline to, to fix that, right? It's a good thing because you don't want anyone slandering against you. God doesn't want anyone slandering his bride, and we won't let it happen. There's ways to resolve conflict. God desires resolution of conflict. He has entire sections of Scripture that are, that are focused on here's how we resolve conflict as Christians, and it doesn't start with slander. Obscene talk. This is an area that the Christians have just completely let out of the bag. Uh, filthy, negative, bad, defaming language. Like We do not let filthy talk come out of our mouths as Christians. It doesn't happen. Uh, people, and this is a lot of people say, well, when I'm out in the world and I'm out, uh, I'm out on this construction site or I'm out you know, hanging out with the guys, they just all cuss and so I just join right along with them. All right? or, or you're one of those people who say, uh, people cuss around you and they say, like me, they do it to me all the time. Pastor, I'm sorry I cussed around you. You know what I say? I say, oh, don't worry about it. No. I say, thank you, because you better recognize around a child of God, you shouldn't be using that kind of language. And when people apologize to you for using defaming, filthy language, you should say, hey, I appreciate that, because you should be convicted about that. People should be convicted that they're using filthy, foul language because it's against God. They're, not, they're, not, they're looking at you as a representation of God, as an ambassador of Christ, and when they apologize to you because they're using filthy language, you should take that as an opportunity for gospel conversation. Yeah, why are you apologizing to me? Well, because you believe in God. Well, do you know what it means to believe in God? See how easy that was? We got to be making sure that we don't let these obscene things come out of our mouths. And even in the conversations of other people, we can lead them to Christ by talking about these things. Now, verse 9a uh, may seem like he's going to a different topic, but he's staying on the same one. Look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another. This is a big one in the Christian, in the Christian church. Speaking or acting in a way that is not true, Lies of omission, lying is not speaking, right? Uh, this, these are the big, big problems uh, in Christian life. A lot of times we don't blatantly lie to one another. But what we do is we tell half-truths, don't we? And I was just being nice. I didn't want to tell them the whole truth because it would have offended them. No, you just lied, and you're trying to figure out why you're, you're trying to validate why you lied. We don't lie, right? We don't lie to one another. We don't withhold truth. Uh, you know, this is a big one in my, in my generation. We just don't say anything. I didn't lie. I didn't say anything. It's called a lie of omission. You, didn't, you omitted it. You didn't say it. It's a lie. You knew the truth and you didn't say it. 
we're not just, and listen, I'm, you may be the one who says, well, you're just telling people to tell people the truth and be angry. No, no, no. I'm saying like, you may be lying to people to cover up your own sin and you can't do that. You need to fess up your own sin and just be honest and transparent and tell the truth. It's a problem that we all have. Here's another kind of lie, not keeping commitments. Write that down. Not keeping a commitment is also known as a lie. Why? Because when I go and talk to somebody and I tell them I'm going to be somewhere at so-and-so time and I don't do it, what is that? It's a lie. This is why Jesus says, you don't need to be making oaths, you don't need to be making promises, you need to simply let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. Okay, not, ah, I don't know, we'll see, nah, yes, I'm going to be there and not show up. No, you either need to do it or you don't need to do it. Either you say yes or you say no, and you commit to it. Keeping commitments is a, is a sign of, of, of a maturing Christian. We don't take that too seriously in our culture today, but we've got to make sure we're not lying. And these are all negatives. But can I flip this into the positive for point number two? Point number two is you need to build more godly relationships. Right, we're going to take off these smelly, nasty things that we call relational sins, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, and how we're going to do that, we're going to do that because we're building godly relationships. Ephesians 4, 29. It's a good parallel passage. You can flip there. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, which if you remember, is just right down the road from Colossae. I mean, they are just driving distance. Okay. Here's what he says. Ephesians 4, 29 through 32. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. You hear that? There's no qualification there. It's like, except for when here. No, no, never. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But here's what you should let come out of your mouth. But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Man, doesn't that sound like a friendship you want to be a part of? Right? And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What, why is that in there? Because we understand that when we aren't speaking in such a way to build up God's church and his people, uh, and we know that's exactly what God wants us to do, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. We're convict- we, we have a conviction that we need to live a certain way, and we're choosing not to. We're grieving the Holy Spirit. That's why righteousness is so important, because when we're living in sin, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. That's why you feel convicted when you're in sin. Right? It's not because you just have this like superb conscience. It's because you have the Holy Spirit of God, the perfect God who lives inside of you, who's saying, this ought not to be so. And then you get convicted. Uh, and then you can either decide to kill that or let it harbor. And then that's when we get into the grief-filled life. Like every day I wake up and I just, I just hate things. And I just, okay, let's go. Let's kill sin and let's readdress this. All right. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Again, put away. Take it off. It needs to be gone. Take it off of you. You don't need it. Along with all malice. Here's the positives. Here's what you should be doing instead. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Tender-hearted. We don't use that word as much, much anymore, do we? Be tender-hearted. How are you going to be tender-hearted towards someone? How can you as a Christian be, be tender-hearted towards someone? Because there's a lot of people in here who say, I'm only friends with people till I disagree with them, and then I'm not friends with them anymore. Think about a Christian. Think about a Christian church, and, and you don't have to think too hard because we're, we, these are everywhere in society. Well, that church split because they weren't tender-hearted, but because that church split over there because uh, they disagreed about something and they just split. They weren't tender-hearted. They weren't forgiving each other as Christ forgave you. 
Can you imagine this going on in the first century church and what the apostles and the elders of those churches would have done if this happened there? Oh, wait, we have the Bible. It talks about those things. They don't let it happen, just like we don't let that happen. And the best way to keep those things from happening is build godly relationships. If you show me a man with deep sin in his life, I'm going to show you a man who lacks godly relationships and genuine transparency. Did you hear that? You show me a man who has a deep sin in his life, I'm going to show you a man that doesn't have godly community, which means you need godly relationships. If you're struggling, not if, because you're struggling in sin probably means that in your life right now, you don't have a lot of transparent relationships in your life. You don't have a lot of godly men and godly women in your lives who you can speak to and talk to freely. And or you also don't have the kind of godly friends who would be tenderhearted, who would help you kill sin and not defriend you because you guys don't agree. You see what I'm saying? If you want to have a godly church, if you want God to build his church here in this local context, you better be tenderhearted. You better be kind to one another, and you better forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you, because that's the only way we're going to have more godly relationships. We don't get godly relationships when everyone is perfect, and the first person that isn't perfect, we then shun. Okay? But we as if I call you, I call Pastor Evan and say, there's a lion at my house, can you come help? Yeah, you let that thing in there, bud. All on you. No. All right, what is he going to do? He's going to come over there, he's going to grab his gun, I'm going to grab my gun, he's going to come from the front with the teeth, I'm going to come from the back with a tail, and I'm going to shoot it at the tail, and he's going to take him head on, okay? <laughs> Ooh. I want you to leave here today with one more godly relationship. And I mean that. I'm looking, look at all of you look at me right in the eyeballs right now. You need to leave here with one more godly relationship. That means when you get done, when I get done, and you walk out those doors, the last thing that you better do is walk straight to your car. Well, I got lunch plans. Tell them you're going to be late. I'm kidding. We keep commitments, right? We don't lie. <laughs> but you make a commitment to make sure that you spend time here building godly relationships. You need to make sure that you're out there and you're meeting people who are trying to pursue godliness. Because you're not going to find a more concentrated group of people trying to live a holy life than you do right here, right now. You ought to be pursuing those relationships. You ought to be creating opportunity and space for godly relationships. Okay, that's why we have life groups, you realize. We have life groups because we have small groups of people that we want to put together to cluster them together to help each other live godly lives. And so this means don't just sign up for a life group commit to the life group, right? You can't just say, yeah, I'll go to a life group. I just guys go every once in a while. No, go to the life group. You want, you want to live a holy life? You're going, to, you're going to do a whole lot better when you're in a community of people on a regular basis. That's why we have life groups. We had great life group attention. This week, 152 people came to life group this past week. That's big. That's huge. You should praise God for that, but we need more. We need more people wanting to live holy lives in community with one another. And I know some of me ask this question, right? You ask me this question. But Pastor Hayden, how do I do all this? Like, how do I do all these things? You're just, what is this? Just legalism? No, it's not legalism. Legalism is you trying to earn God's favor. It's you trying to earn God's favor of justification. And you can't do that. You can't. You cannot earn your salvation. But you do live a holy life because of your salvation. As a matter of fact, 
Uh, I can tell you, you do this because you got to remember what Paul said at the beginning of his letter. So many times when we do verse by verse, it's been so long since we looked at chapter 1. But go back to chapter 1, Colossians 1, verses 9 through 11. This is what Paul says in Colossians 1, 9 through 11. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. From heard what? Since the day we heard what? That you turned from your sins and you trusted in Christ. Since the day that we heard you were saved, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you, you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. I'm gonna, he's, God's going to give you the wisdom to walk in holiness. He's going to give you the, the, the power to walk in holiness. He's going to give you the knowledge because he wants you to do this in verse number 10. God's going to give you these things because he wants you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Isn't that interesting? We, we have the, the conversation of justification and sanctification. If God was just fully pleased in our justification and didn't expect anything else after that, would we have this verse in the Bible? Any of these verses in the Bible of good works, of God asks us to walk in holiness, peripateo. It means it's not just, we don't just sit, we walk. We, we live a life that's holy and pleasing to the Lord. That is, that's what it means to be Christian. Like we're not, yes, we're saved. That's great. Nothing can pluck me out of the hands of Christ. I, I can't be removed from that. I'm positionally in Christ. But he, he asked me that I need to be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual understanding so that I can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, so I can be fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here's how you're going to do it. Verse 11. Because you're going to be strengthened with all power according to your own glorious might. That's not what it says, is it? You're going to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. So not only are you going to be able to kill sin, you're going to be able to do it according to his glorious might. You're going to do it with endurance, you're going to do it with patience, and you're going to be happy to do it. That's what it means to be a Christian. When you get sin out of your life, and it may be hard in the moment, you may have to have some hard conversations you don't want to have, you may be confronting things that you don't want to confront, but after you're done with it, you're going to be like, wow, I'm so much more joyful in my life that I'm not dealing with a grief-filled life that I had before that Christ saved me from. Church, we've got to be serious about killing sin, serious about building these godly relationships that are going to help that happen. And here's how we're going to do it. Look at verse, the second half of verse 9. We're not going to lie to one another. Because we're going to see to it that you have put off the old self with its practices. I love this. You should underline that when you want to understand the relationship between justification and sanctification. Okay? Uh, we're going to put off the old self. Well, what was the old self? It was, it's dead because I'm in Christ. It is dead to me. But what isn't dead? It's practices. Right? The practices, the actual sin actions. Right? You may be saved, but your practices are still much in line with the sin that you needed saved from. And so we've got to make sure that not only are we putting off the old self, we're also putting off the practices of the old self. The Bible talks a lot about sanctification, doesn't it? It talks a lot about us having to stop the practices of sin. Christ saved us from the penalty of those sins, at least eternally. But there's a lot of things uh, that you still have to deal with. For instance, I call them the societal consequences of sin. Right? You murder someone, uh, and you, you turned and you came to Christ. Well, you're saved from the punishment of God, but you're not saved from the punishment of society. 
You pay for that. And that's what some people just don't realize. Well, I'm saved from Christ. Yes, you are. But God has set so many just what we would call natural revelationary things in our world. Like when you do something bad, there's a consequence on earth for it, even if you're saved from God. Right? You, you, you and your spouse get into it. Well, I was saved. I'm saved. Well, okay. You're still dealing with conflict in your marriage. And if you don't resolve it, you're going to have a terrible marriage. The gospel teaches you how to fix those things, but the gospel isn't going to fix your marriage unless you apply it, right? That's what we need to understand in our lives. We're called to live holy lives because there's still societal consequences of sin that you have to eradicate in your life, and you do that by living a holy life. All right, another problem that I often run into in counseling, many people who do counseling run into this. So many people say, I stopped doing all these things. I stopped doing all these bad things. I'm saying, okay, then what? What did you do after that? Nothing. What do you mean nothing? The Bible tells us to put off our old self and put on the new self. That is, I'm going to say no to all these bad things, but I can't just leave it there. I've got to say yes to godliness. I've got to then live in righteousness. I then need to be living a life after the wisdom and the knowledge and understanding of God so I can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So I'm not only saying no to the old self, I'm saying yes to the new self. I'm putting on the new self. And here's what's good about that. It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It's being renewed. Did you hear how passive that was? That means you are given the power to do that through the Holy Spirit. You are given the opportunity and the privilege to live in holiness because the Spirit of God helps you. The Spirit of God directs you and leads you in holiness. This is one of the big problems that we find in our culture. With that, we have a, such a, a syncretistic culture, uh, and, and this is why sanctification and justification are so important. And if you have lived in a syncretistic uh, family or culture or school, you're going to deal with this. Well, what do you mean that God, that I can't have sin in my life if I'm a Christian? Well, because the Bible literally says as much, right? It says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I mean, that's, that's dead. And here's why we may have a hard time with this. Depending on what your worldview is, you may have a dualistic understanding of society in the world. Uh, you may not know what that means, but I bet you know what yin and yang are, don't you? What are they? Good and bad. And they work together to bring about completeness and harmony. That's no, Okay. No, that's, that's Eastern religious pantheism, okay? All right, that, that, does not, that doesn't fit in a biblical worldview. There isn't good and bad that's working itself together. You know, God isn't, isn't, isn't brother of Satan, and they're both good and bad, and they're both going to... No, 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 no. Satan is a lesser being that God has casted out of heaven, going to put him in eternal torment and shame, and he's going to be in eternal torment for the rest of his life. There is, God is one and there is no other. Okay. Uh, also in our lives, we're dead to sin. It's not also working, no, 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 it's killing you. If sin's in your life, it's killing you. It's not working together with righteousness. Okay. That's why you get rid of it. It's a very Eastern religious idea to say that I can have sin and righteousness. No, no. the Bible says it's gone. All right. Here's some other ways. I mean, we're talking about relational sins, right? We're talking about interpersonal relationships. And then Paul also talks about these things that are very uh, present in the life of the church in Colossae. He's saying, you guys, as a church, here's, here's some things you do, okay? You make these distinctions that ought not to be so. He says, there's no Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, and slave and free. 
this is the, you may not know what all those mean, but here's what you know, the concepts and the categories. Uh, Paul's looking at the church and saying, uh, you know what, your nationality doesn't matter, your race doesn't matter. Somebody needs to hear that in our, in our society today. Nationality and race, your class, your previous religious background, your societal position, those things are of not in God's church. Of not. You're of not, right? And here's why. Because it literally says, but Christ is all and in all. You know what matters in God's economy? Two classifications. Those who are in Christ and those who need Christ. Any other type of uh, distinction that we have to make in the, in the church is unbiblical, ungodly. Because there are two types of people in the world. People who have Christ are going to be eternally with Christ and those who need Christ. And if they, don't, if they don't turn from their sins and trust in Christ, they'll be eternally away from Christ forever. There's your distinctions. Those things transcend race, they transcend nationality, they transcend everything. And if your church, your church is our church, if our church wants to focus on anything else but that, we are going down an unbiblical road. Not a non-biblical, not things that we could do because the Bible doesn't say we can't. The Bible says we can't make those distinctions, you do realize, and we won't. And the reason we won't is because we're going to do this and it's point number three. It's because we're going to fully embrace your new identity. If I'm going to fully embrace my new identity, then the other past old life, those, those identities don't matter anymore. Okay? Those identities don't matter. And this is what was going on. It was permeating through the church in Colossae, and it was creating division of the uttermost. Which You don't have to think too hard in our culture to find those exact distinctions that create division in our own culture. Okay? Paul's saying, you guys can't, the, you, you Greek people and you Jewish people can't keep being on each other's throats when you're both Christian brothers and sisters. It's like, you can't f- f- force them to be circumcised because you're circumcised when Christ is circumcision. You see this? Barbarians, Scythians, you're both terrible people. You don't have to compete to see who's more terrible. You're both terrible, okay? <laughs> slave and free. This isn't about slave and free. We're all free in Christ. Distinctions. In, in the Bible, there's two. I'm saved, and I need to be saved. We need to fully embrace your new identity. Here's, here's how important embracing your new identity is. Uh, I don't know a lot about it, and maybe you do, depending on what your job is. Uh, the Witness Protection Agency. right? Witness Protection Agency. When you go into the Witness Protection Agency, it's because life was pretty bad, you're in deep danger, uh, and you have to go to the Witness Protection Agency, and you get a new identity, you get a new, uh, all new information, new name, new driver's license, new social security card, new geographical location. They take you completely out of your old life and put you in a brand new life to protect you, to put you in a place where you're no longer in danger. The problem in Witness Protection Agency is when these people who have a new identity start looking back at things that they don't have anymore. They start missing things that they don't have anymore. They start having a friend that they want to go back to and call and text and say, I miss you. And the moment that they do, they're back on the run. The moment that they go back and take a step into their previous life, they're back in danger. And they have to start all over again. And what I'm saying is in our Christian life, we are dead to the past. We can't be dabbling in the past because when we dabble in the past, when we're a Christian, are we going to be unsaved? We're going to lose our salvation? No. But you know what we're going to do? You're going to be back on the run. You're going to be back in a sin-filled, grief-filled life that you were in before that Christ saved you from. And then we got to go back there, put our arm around you and say, let's get back out of this. Let's go back over here. Okay, that's what the church is for. But you shouldn't be 
jumping back into sin all the time because somebody's going to get you out of it. You need to be making sure that you get out of it. And if you're going to do that, that means you're going to fully embrace your new identity. Because just like I said before, if you're going to neglect the work of dismantling personal sin, you're going to repeatedly be practicing the same sins that God condemns, and you're going to continue living in the same sins that cause grief and shame in your life. So that means we need to do this, friends. We need to start cleaning out that sin closet, all right? And you go to go home right now after you go connect with people and you go to lunch because you keep all your commitments, all right? You're going to also commit to go home and you're going to sit down with your spouse. You're going to sit down with, with yourself. You're going to sit down with the Lord and you're going to say, I'm getting rid of the sin in my life today. I'm killing it. I'm getting rid of it. And then I'm going to go make some godly relationships and talk about it and say, hey, uh, I know we're close. I know we're both Christian brothers and we're both, we're both Christian sisters. We need to talk about this to be accountable so that we can grow in holiness together. And then we're going to fully embrace it. We're going to see it. And we're going to be excited about it. Right? We're going to be excited about it? Living in holiness? I hope so. I walked into 2415 Lifehouse Industrial Drive this past week. And when I walked in, I saw the most amazing transformation that we've seen to date. Okay? And I walk in and I look and I said, this is going to be it. This is it. Look at this thing. This is going to hold thousands of people across multiple services. It's going to, we're going to have the kids over there. The students are going to be over there. The parents are going to be in there. The coffee is going to be right there. All right, we're going to be training over there. We're going to be hanging out right here. And what I did is because of the transformation that had happened, I look at it and I can eagerly be excited about what's to come because of it. And what I want you to make sure you're doing in your own life is as you see the transformation happen, you're recognizing it, and you're looking at it, and you're celebrating it, you're encouraging it, and it encourages you to push on to more holiness. Because every time I walk into that building, it should be the same effect that I have every time I look at my life compared to what it was before. When I look at where God has brought me, I say, God, thank you so much. I cannot wait for more sanctification. I don't, I don't love the discipline of the Lord, but I love the discipline of the Lord. You know what I'm saying? I don't love killing sin, but I love killing sin. And that is the mark of a Christian and what we ought to be doing every day of our life. So let's be those kind of Christians who, who wage war against sin because we understand what it cost Christ. And we understand not only what it costed him, but what it costs us every day. So let us be eager and excited to do the work of the Lord, both by building his church here and walking in holiness every day. Let's pray. God, we come to you grateful, I mean, just eternally grateful that you have saved us from sin. Uh, and not only that, you didn't leave us here as orphans, but you gave us your spirit that sanctifies us, that, that goes with us to walk a holy life. God, I pray that we would take that serious uh, this morning, uh, that we would walk out of here convicted and exhorted and encouraged to go live holy lives. Because we know it's for your sake, it's for your glory, and it would be that other people would see our lives, they would glorify you, and they would ask the question, why? And that we could share with them the glorious truth of the gospel, and that many people would come to know you through our witness and our testimonies of living lives that are honoring and pleasing to you. And we thank you, we pray as we continue worshiping God that you would both move us toward you, that you would move us to holiness. In Christ's name I pray, amen.